BTB listeners, thank you so much for checking out today's episode. Listen, if this episode inspires you, do me a favor. Take five seconds to shoot me a like and subscribe to the podcast. There are several more exciting guests that are in the pipeline, and I just can't thank you enough for your continued support. And let's keep paying the mission forward. In today's episode, I interview Dave McPherson. He's the former coach of renowned tennis stars Bob and Mike Bryan, the Bryan brothers, and he also coached John Isner. We discuss Dave's coaching career, his philosophy, the dynamic between him and the players that he's coached, his upcoming venture coaching Jackson Winthrow and Nate Lemons going into 2024. This conversation touches on various aspects of tennis, including doubles coaching, the mental challenges of the sport, adapting to different coaching needs, and strategy. Dave's journey is one of the most remarkable I've come across, and I look forward to sharing his story. Don't be afraid of the dark. Be careful with stars. Not every light is gonna guide you, Welcome to the BTB Project designed to empower listeners to identify their why and to live their best lives no matter the circumstances. My name is Coleman Gerhardt, a former athlete and motivational coach. I've had the opportunity to inspire thousands through my story and help accomplish what they are built to be. You'll be encouraged by each and every episode, and let's get into it. Yeah, when I blow up, I'm a sore high like Peter Pan. In real life, be living all my dreams if I'm waking up the BTB project has had many opportunities to connect with people that have unbelievable stories. And today's guest is, in my opinion, one of, or if not the best doubles coach in the game of tennis. I say that because this gentleman has had a resume that if I tried to, to roll it out on the ground, it would take me a few miles to read through all of the success he's been able to have. But more importantly, I'm just excited to hear more about his story, his heart, what makes him tick. He's the former coach of Bob and Mike Bryan, spent 18 years on the ATP World Tour. He's helped not only doubles folks, but also singles players. And he's now the co director at No Quit Academy. In Las Vegas, Mr. Dave McPherson, welcome to the BTB Project. Thank you, Coleman. A pleasure to be here. We'll enjoy our conversation. No, absolutely. And it's pretty wild how small the tennis world is. I know that James McGee is someone that works closely alongside you there at No Quit Academy. And he is someone that has been a tremendous mentor to me and what he was able to do for his country of Ireland and on the tour and now giving back to kids at No Quit. And I would love to start for you just to share with the listeners a little bit more about why you wanted to spend the time that you have spent at No Quit and some of the lives that you've been able to impact since being there. Yeah, I I suppose it was just meant to be. I had some amazing years with Mike and Bob and then John Esner and with John winding down his career, I needed a, a new path to go. And I got a call around Christmas time last year from Ryan Wolfington, our, our president of the Inspiring Children Foundation, who support the No Quit Academy. 
just asking if I'd possibly be interested in being a co-director. And I just felt drawn to the whole thing because I had a lot of experience popping in and doing a little appearances and little coaching days with, with the kids down there at No Quit. So I knew the culture and I knew James McGee and Tim Blinker and my fellow co-directors. And I was like, this is a worthy project. This is a chance to help more than just one person or in Mike and Bob's case, two people. We do amazing work down there. We really help children that don't come from a lot of privilege and resources a lot of the time. And through tennis and our program and school, we help them get into college and hopefully go on to productive, glorious lives from, in large part from the years they spend at the academy. Yeah. And that's just such a beautiful testament to who you are, what No Quit represents and the Inspired Children Foundation component of the, the mission of No Quit is really touching to me and something that I can resonate with because growing up and we chatted about this a little bit before we hopped on is I had a very unconventional development with my tennis path and I didn't have a lot of the resources as some of my counterparts did to develop, whether it's a, a country club environment or going to an academy or paying for lessons. A lot of my development was literally finding an open court that had a hitting wall and starting by just falling in love with the ball hitting my strings and the simplicity of the game. And when it comes to your career as a coach and your career as a player, Dave, I'd love for you to tap into when it comes to giving back to these kids, are there some aspects of that giving back that you can resonate with how you were raised and how you grew up playing the game? Absolutely. I basically grew up in Tasmania with, and uh, I learned to play on a wall. I must've played a thousand matches against imaginary matches against myself on the wall. And that's basically how I learned to play. My dad um, also obviously was a good player and he, he guided me out to a certain age. When I was about 12 or 13, I, I went to boarding school and that was where my journey began in Sydney. But yeah, there's just something that feels really good about helping others in, in, in all walks of life. And I do feel like we really, that's a massive part of the culture at No Quit. Like it's all about giving to others and and that is a powerful thing and it gives you energy as well because we really feel like i think all of us is that we're there for each other we, we never let each other down we always find the positives and, and adversity so that really is just an incredible culture that i've been, been able to join now this past 12 months and yeah i, I feel like it's back to my roots a little bit because it was really basic back in the day right? in Tasmania and just getting a little collection of eight old balls or something like that and putting a number on them and guarding them like they were my treasures to right. take under the wall and play imaginary matches against or my idols at the time or labor and rose wall and that's a long time ago it's amazing how complicated the game of tennis can be, and I'm sure we'll tap into that, but the simplicity of it, your love and passion for it speaks volumes and how it's helped resonate to what you're doing to help others is tremendous. I, I would love to walk down memory lane a little bit. You had your fair share of time on the tour and you honed in your game to play at the highest level and really honed in your game to play at the highest level in doubles. Outside of those moments as a kid growing up, 
at what point did you recognize that you had a talent for this and would you start at that point setting some goals to be the best tennis player you can be yeah i suppose once again it was just meant to be and back in gosh probably 1979 or 1980 they held a competition in conjunction with the davis cup tie in sydney the United States, remember McEnroe was on that team, McEnroe's climbing, we're playing their guys. And they took one 12 year old from each state and put him in a little tournament in conjunction with the Davis Cup tie. And surprisingly, the Tasmanian kid won, just got some lucky bounces. And based on that result, when Tony Roach and John Newcomb were picking uh, four or five kids, hand picking kids to come to boarding school in Sydney and be coached by Tony every day in the hope that we could produce some uh, future champions. I was one of those five kids that were originally chosen because of that one miraculous tournament that I was able to pull off in 1979. And then that set everything in motion from wow. boarding school in Sydney, learning under Tony, and then to go on to eventually play on the tour and specialize in doubles, which of course, Newcomb and Roach were famous for. They won five Wimbledons back in the sixties. That was where my skill set lay, just following and copying him. And then just to once again, miraculously be put together by fate with Mike and Bob Bryan was just incredible. So that was a match made in heaven for me. Yeah. And it definitely puts a lot of things full circle for me, Dave, because being a, a coach here in Colorado, I've had a lot of kids that I've sent to John Newcomb's tennis Academy in New Braunfels, Texas. And I also ironically have had a lot of Stanford lineage that have been on the podcast, former coach Dick Gould, who won 17 national championships. And obviously Bob and Mike spent some time there and, and McEnroe was there. And my mentor, Jeff Salzenstein was there. And it's really fascinating because this concept of doubles, I know that tennis can be deemed as a individual sport and in the college world, when I was playing, you play your doubles point and then you, you go play singles and you have to tap into both. But I just would be curious, based off of your development, when you were noticed and when you played on the tour, doubles is such a unique and specialized art form. And mm -hmm. with that art form, it can be something that is poetic and beautiful as we got to see with guys like the Bryan brothers, but it also can be really challenging to make that transition being a, a really good singles player to having that crossover and double. So I just would love for you to share what always resonated with you with doubles as a player. And did some of those moments that you experienced as a player cross into how you coach doubles? Yes, I think. All kids, when they're growing up, they dream of winning Wimbledon singles. And I certainly did that. And it just, but it was just the way my skill set was made that I had, would have more success. The older I got, the more success I would have in doubles. I was a better volleyer. I had good anticipation. I brought positive energy to my partner. All, all the things that help you win in doubles. That's what I was good at. And I was weaker in singles areas. Like I wasn't particularly strong or powerful. So I, that's what gravitated my game towards doubles, just out of realizing, wow, you're a lot better at doubles than singles. So this is where you need to focus your energies. And, and then as a coach, my first pro tour assignment really was 
to coach Mike and Bob Ryan. So that was what I knew. And as incredible as they already were, they were just a, just a one little step away from what they ended up becoming. So we were just well suited to each other. And then after the career with Mike and Bob, teaming up with John Isner, it was a real challenge to get back and think in terms of singles again and rededicate my thinking to what works in singles. So it was just, that was a big shift, but it's all part of the process and the journey. Obviously, those are just the high caliber players that you got to be around. Obviously, as fans or spectators, like I have been, greatness on the court, you see what they're capable of. But as a coach, I really resonated with what you said when you started with Bob and Mike and they were having success, but they needed something to get them over the hump to allow them to do something extraordinary. And really at the end of the time that you spent with them, 15 grand slams, 100 ATP doubles titles, Davis cup titles, Olympic gold medals. There, there wasn't anything that they didn't do, Dave, but I'm just curious from your coaching perspective, what were they missing that allowed them to get over the hump? And how were you able to recognize that as a coach? Looking back, because they had lost six Grand Slam finals in a row leading up to the 2005 US Open. They were already the number one or two team. They just were having trouble winning the big matches. It was just a little bit of a crisis of confidence and belief in the big moments. Just having a, a fresh voice for that 2005 US Open to be a buffer between them, because that was always the challenge with the, with the twins. They had the incredible communication, but someone had to make decisions. Like they just needed someone to be their intermediary or their, their little captain of the team. Yep. That seemed to, they functioned better. Like when we would get together as a team and I would give them my thoughts on what they needed to do as individuals and as a team and what the opponents were going to bring to the table. So it's just maybe some good structure there that uh, took away as twin brothers. Of course, they were prone to fighting as twin brothers are. So yeah. when things didn't go well on the court, it was very easy to be combustible. So to have sort of me just, just be that, that like just captain of the ship, if you like, I think took a lot of the pressure off them and they were able to just focus their energies a little bit more productively. And then once they'd won that first US Open, they played a beautiful final, beat Bjorkman and Manny, just a dazzling display in 2005. And then another crackerjack match in the Australian Open of 2006, where they beat Pays and Dam. So then they'd won two in a row and pretty much from that moment on, they, they didn't look back. They really felt like we are the kings of doubles and it's just a matter of time before we break all the records. It just, this was that little final push over the, over the lift to full confidence. <laughs> yeah. And I know you'll probably be able to resonate with this, but I know that as a coach, your responsibility was for those players, but it takes a village. And I know that Wayne Bryan Bob and Mike's dad was a huge part of their tennis development, and he's a tennis genius in his own right. I'm just curious, when you go into a situation like that where you're dealing with a, a brother dynamic that happened to be a, a doubles tandem, with your coaching, how often are you integrating other pieces around the players that you're helping to try to tap into their potential? Because sometimes... I have to 
as a coach myself, make sure that the parents are on board for what I'm doing to help the player and have it be a collaboration amongst all of us. I'd love to get your two cents on how you integrate all of the moving parts into your coaching journey. Yes, it was tricky dynamic in the beginning before I really learned what made them tick and Wayne and I would communicate always via email mostly because I guess that, and this is so often the case with parents, even though he knew tennis so well and he knew the boys more intimately than me, you know, it's still hard for parents to coach kids in a lot of cases. There's a lot of emotions there. So the boys, I think at some point felt like, and, and, and Wayne, they just realized that we're going to have to go outside the family, just get someone independent, probably just to, you know, keep things operating at the most productive level. And, but Wayne and I would communicate all the time and he would give me insights, especially in the early years that I would have not known or not picked up on as individuals and their emotions and everything. So we were a closely knit sort of group right from the beginning and Wayne was great with me and we had a fantastic relationship all the way through constant communication and it just, it was just the right way for him to, to coach. Like he was able to still be a massive influence, not only in the formative years with his wife, Kathy, teaching them how to play, getting them all the way to Stanford and then coach Gould, helping them progress even farther and then out onto the tour all the way to where we joined up in 2005. So I guess a testament to to Wayne and Kathy, that they were just intelligent and uh, so selfless that they were able to collaborate and help the boys be the best they could be. That's really powerful that you were willing to collaborate. I've seen situations where coaches want to have the control and they sometimes push away some of these important resources that have allowed first of all these players are human beings they have loved ones they got people that, that care for them there's a support system and for you to find a way to maintain the relationship you had with bob and mike to get the best out of them doing what you do as a coach but also integrating that whole team environment of family around them i think that the way that you would do that is really special. Looking back on that moment with Bob and Mike, I know you mentioned a couple matches, but was there a moment where it allowed you to sit back seeing those two guys play and say, I cannot believe these guys are playing at this level? Were there any like awe moments in your career as a coach or all the time you spent, all the energy and sacrifice you put in to get these guys ready to play, that this was what you expected the outcome to be. In general, they were just so consistently outstanding that it was just a procession of tournaments that stacked into years, that stacked into a career. That, But certainly there were some wow moments and probably one that comes to mind is the Olympic gold medal match at Wimbledon where they had really bashedly set their goals to win that, which is puts a lot of pressure and there was enough pressure of just being number one or winning grand slams, but they wanted to win a gold medal for their country really badly. So the pressure on them that day was enormous. They were the favorites, but they were playing a very formidable team in Songa and Lodro who were well suited to grass 
and Lodger had beaten them in a Wimbledon final previously. So this was a really big challenge. And just the way they stepped up and played a great first game to break, serve, and then held on, I think, to win the match 6-3, 7-6 for the gold medal. That was a wow moment. So guys are so courageous. Not only are they a lot of courage and self-belief to, to play such a, a great match when it, you wanted it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I'm always curious, when players like that win a gold medal, does the coach get a gold medal too? They, I think the boys made me sort of a replica gold, which was super nice of them because I was just their personal coach because yeah. I wasn't the U.S. coach. Jay Berger, I think, was our U.S. coach, if I right. remember correctly. Yeah. And we had Michael on the team trying to draw on those memories. I, I, I hope I got that right. As a personal, just individual coach, I was just lucky to even be there. I wasn't officially nominated as, as the U.S. tennis coach, but the boys, they were great. They got me yeah. a, like a... A replica gold medal, which I have back in Tasmania at my mom's house. Gotcha. No, that's awesome. I'm just curious because obviously you've been able to coach one of the greatest, if not the greatest doubles tandem of all time. I am currently a high school coach out here in Colorado. Got a, got a very competitive tennis program that has allowed us to have some connections with some other pretty good doubles players from the tour. And there's a gentleman that spends some time with us the last couple of years, Oliver Marich from Austria. I don't know if that yeah. name rings a bell. Of course. Yeah. No, he was one of the Brian's rivals for many years. Yeah. Wonderful uh, doubles player. Yeah. So he's out helping a couple of our high school practices. And it's just been neat to pick his brain on ideal double strategy and some of the general ins and outs of doubles. But I'm just curious if you had four people on a court and they were, I would say average or above average tennis players, and you're teaching them doubles one-on-one, what's the Dave McPherson rule of thumb on <laughs> how to maximize your doubles potential? I guess Mike and Bob and I, we used to just break it down into four games. We'd address all four games, Bob serve, Mike serve, and each of the opponent's service games. So. We'd talk about how best to hold Bob serve, like where to, is the best place to serve and how involved should Mike be at the net. And, oh, it's an elaborate process, but that, that's how we used to do it. We used to say, okay, the match is comprised of four, four games. And let's talk about each game and talk about how best to win that game each time. So that was uh, how we would do it. But when the boys were serving, obviously. It was very important about where we placed the serve. We tried to get the net man involved as much as possible because he's the person already up on top of the net, very close to the net. So if he can get his racket on the ball first, that really increases your chances. If you're a competent volley, of course, or smash, that increases your chances of holding serves. So we had a, a number in mind of at least two points a game where the net player would finish the point on the third shot for the server. And if you weren't winning two points a game in that regard, you weren't doing your job. So there was a desperation from the server's partner. And I think that's a great rule of thumb for people at most all advanced levels that the net player of the server should be trying to win at least two points a game for the server without even touch. If the server can put his serve in the box, especially if you can put it in the box in a location uh, that he says he's going to put it in, <laughs> then the, the net man should be able to do that for him. And then on the return, obviously it's your job as the returner to avoid the net player. 
either by lob or by going down the line or being accurate with your cross-court return. Once you've gotten the ball to the server, then it's an even level playing field. And then you have a, a chance to break serve. But if you don't get the ball past the net player on the first return, then there'll be some you know difficulty in breaking serve. So that in a kind of a very simple nutshell is like the themes that we would focus on. Yeah. That's awesome. And, and the last tactical question I have for you is there's this interesting dilemma out there. You said being the first person at the net to get the ball on your racket with the volley, but there's a lot of singles players that struggle up there at the net. And I've seen a lot of predominant tour guys play two back. And I just would love to get your two cents on formations and ideal formations and doubles. Do you really need an ideal formation or is one up, one back really just the, the way to do it? I know we, Mike and Bob played a lot of two back, especially against the bigger serving teams. And I think most at the higher level, when the serving is good and the net player is active, it makes all the sense in the world not to be one up, one back on first serve return. You give yourself a chance to extend the point and make it tougher for the server to hold if you're two back on first serve. Mike and Bob, we would obviously talk about that a lot before every match. And yeah, traditionally in the old Newcomen Roach days, they, they didn't do that. They played their returners partner out nearly in all situations. Everything was on grass back then. So you rarely got a good bounce. So your, your chance of hitting a good ground stroke were, were, were not good. The conventional wisdom back then was just stick the man up at the net and don't let it bounce, right? Get, get the returner's partner involved at the net as much as possible. But it evolved. And now I would say this conventional wisdom is to be two back on first serve quite a lot. I, I love hearing you say and, and walk through that because there's so many nuggets and words of wisdom that we can learn from you when it comes to the game of tennis and, and doubles. It's interesting because you make a shift to go to the, to the singles world with a guy like John Isner and a very unique path that he had coming from Georgia and taking more of a traditional path to where you play your four years of college, you, you go on the tour and he's a pretty tall guy, a big serve and maybe almost more unorthodox to what you were used to with Bob and Mike. I would love to hear what was that transition like for you? How did that relationship start? Yeah, John and I were really good friends even before we started working together. I was got to know him a lot during Davis Cup because I was there helping Mike and Bob play the doubles point. Jim Curry, the captain at the time, was fantastic about inviting me onto the team in an unofficial capacity to just try and help Mike and Bob be at their best so he could focus on the singles aspects of the, the points. But so John and I bonded during Davis Cup and then his coach at the time, Justin Gimmelstab, was my best friend also. So that was just really good synergy. And we had so much in common. We both love our sports so passionately. So we could talk about hockey and football all day. So we were just two peas in a pod as far as personalities. That was just a, a really good fit for us when John asked me to come help and join the team with Justin and Renee Moeller. We were a triumvirate coaching partnership there for 2018, I think. So it was just a, yeah, he was just a pleasure to, to coach. And of course he was, like you say, a unique player. He was six foot 11 or thereabouts and the best serve in history of the game and, and a very good tennis player. 
as well. But when you're six foot 11, you can't obviously move and stay in baseline rallies with the, the best players of the game. So the strategies involved in, in him being at his best were, were, were a big shift and everything. So yeah, it was just a really good challenge for the years that we had together, but very enjoyable partnership as like it was with Mike. Yeah. And knowing how big his serve was, I'm just curious from the time that you worked with him, what was the biggest serve you saw him hit? How quick was it? His serve was just such a thing of beauty. It was so rhythmic and so clutch. Like he, the bigger the point, the more likely John was. He had a thunderous serve right in the corner, all four corners. No one knew for sure where he was going. And he had just, it was the best I've ever seen. And it was just incredible. The players of today are so amazing. They stay way back deeper than they ever used to. So I met the day over Nadal on the slower surface. They would get way behind the baseline on these bigger courts and they would extend the rallies and make it very difficult for John to just end the point with just a serve with their incredible athleticism and range. So then obviously the advantage, as soon as the point started, just from the movement differential, even though John was, had an amazing forehand, a nice backhand and beautiful touch, it just the movement differential shifted the scales in, in someone like all of these singles players that, of today who are just so incredible movers and baseline players. So it was a, always a challenge for John to break serve because even yeah. if he hit a good strong yeah. return, he really had to come up with four great points to get a break. Like he, and oftentimes two or three, yeah, he could manage, but that last elusive break point was tough against like Rafa or Roger or Novak. It's so tough to basically be asked to hit a, a cold winner because apart from that, like it was hard to beat these guys. You can't run and they're sitting from the baseline. So yeah, it was a challenge and a great journey. It's a type of playing style that I can relate to. I was a big server, big forehand. I did not want the points to last very long. And watching John's career and watching him have success it reminded me a lot of a guy like Andy Roddick. Andy Roddick was the one that I always looked up to as a kid and watching him serve. And now we're seeing what Ben Shelton's doing. And there's a lot of yep. opportunities for these big servers to continue to have success. And I just love that you've been able as a coach to tap into not only that passion that you have for doubles, but to do what you did with John. But I want to pivot real quick because I know that you also spent some time, I believe, in the college tennis world at uh, George Washington University. Would you mind touching on your experience and what it was like to do some time in the college scene and how that was different than some of the tour players you worked with? Yeah, no, that, that was a big adjustment for me. It was time between coaching Mike and Bob and John. And yeah, I, I had that opportunity to, to coach in Washington and it was just a little respite from the tour for me, but, and I did love certain aspects of the college coaching, certainly the team camaraderie and the energy of college, that's just really something special. So I really did, had my moments of really enjoying the college coaching, but there's a lot that goes into being a college coach that's outside tennis that, that wasn't as well suited to my personality. So in the end, I realized I'm a lot more better suited to being a professional coach than, you know, sort of all the stuff that goes into being a college coach as a, what I'm looking for. 
it's just too much paperwork for me. <laughs> it's it's funny you and rules and regulation. Yeah, I, I will never go back and do it again. I can safely say that. <laughs> hey, no, it's funny you say that because I had the privilege of having uh, Coach Greg Patton on the podcast, and he had a tremendous run at, at Boise State. And it was interesting because even throughout all of his success as a college coach, he ended up spending one year being a high school coach in Boise, Idaho. And yep. he absolutely despised it. <laughs> he did yes. not gel with just the difference of the parent dynamic and some of those situations. He was so excited to give back to those kids, but he didn't realize some of the ancillaries that, that came with it in the high school world. And me being a 17-year high school coach, I I understand some of those challenges and talking to some of my friends that are current college coaches and then the rules and regulations and recruiting and things like that. I just appreciate your honesty that you you had enough self-awareness to know truly where your skill set is. And it it walks us right back into what you're up to now. I know that you're recharging your batteries in California, getting to spend some time with family. You're back on the tour, helping a really exciting doubles tandem that is looking to do some great things in 2024. I'd love for you to share with the listeners what is this next step in your journey to helping this doubles team on the tour in today's day and age. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting story, really. That Cincinnati tournament of this year, mid in the summer, I was just chatting with Bob Bryan and who's now the, our Davis Cup captain for the United States. And he said, there's a couple of, a young team that I think would be really a good fit for, for you to possibly coach. So he put us together, Nate Lamons and Jackson Withrow, they're in their late twenties and they're just coming on really strong right now. And they almost made the world tour doubles finals this year. We cracked a top 10 teams. So they're playing at a very high level. So we teamed up forces in the off season here. They came out to Las Vegas, put in a training week at no quit. We're leaving right after Christmas to go back and attack the Australian summer. Yeah, it's an exciting time. Just really go back, back into my, put my Mike and Bob cap on a little bit, even though they're not twin brothers to coach doubles at the absolute pinnacle of the game. It's going to be fun. Uh, that's exciting. And to be able to ride off the start of the year to go back to your homeland. I know that Tasmania is where you grew up. Australia is a, a huge, important part of your life. And I think it would be awesome to hear what it means to you to go back to Australia, to that tournament, and maybe some memorable moments you have from Bob and Mike, but also what you're looking forward to with the new doubles tandem. Yeah, no, Australia was always really kind to Mike and Bob. They won I, gosh, they won a lot of Australian Opens. I might get the number wrong, so I won't even like say it, but it seemed like they won more Melbournes than they didn't win. Like from 2006 onwards, like that was just a happy hunting ground. And for whatever reason, they just flourished down there on Rod Labor Arena. So, so many good memories from Melbourne and then going back to Tasmania to see my family. So it's just so many magical 
memories there. And now we'll, we'll see just one year at a time. Nate and Jackson, they, they should be well suited to the faster hard courts. It's very like, much like playing in the States. It's warm, playing on hard court. So we'll see what unfolds down there. I love it. And coaching and I've been fortunate. You've been fortunate to be a coach, be a mentor to help people. And my mission coach is really to be a coach. Like I never had, I had a lot of coaches that drew some negativity in my life weren't always as encouraging as I would have liked them to have been. And I just went on mission that when I had my career and my career ended as a player to just be like a coach I never had. So as I'm saying that, Dave, I just would love to hear from you based off of your experience. What do you believe makes a good coach? You're trying to get them to be the best version of themselves that they can be. That's the big challenge. And tennis is such an individual emotional sport. And so often you see players being far below their optimal level. They're getting emotions, get involved, nerves, fear, doubt, frustration, all the negative emotions that can come out in a tennis match because you don't have teammates to carry you and, and bond with and get you through those situations, adverse situations. As a coach, you're doing the best to get, give them a clear, calm, positive, confident mind. And then of course you're working on their game as well. But if you can accomplish the mental serenity and determination that it takes that combination of being a fierce, determined, no quit competitor, and also a calm cerebral, getting the best out of yourself, uh, person on the court, if you can accomplish that, then it comes, comes together. But that's just so much easier said than done. So it's a constant struggle and it's a week to week proposition. Like sometimes you get it right and your words seem to trigger good responses with your players, but they're human beings. And one week, John will be in a wonderful place and playing just amazing tennis and beating the best singles players in the world. And the next week, the emotions get the better of him when he plays a more anxious, irritated match and you wonder, you don't wonder because you've been there yourself, what it's like, but, but it's just part of the, the journey is that is you're always striving to find that perfect mental space, emotional space. Yeah. The ability to, and I want to get your two cents on this is I firmly believe that when I'm helping somebody as a coach, I don't want to coach at them. I want to coach with them. And I often find that some of the most powerful moments I have as a coach is when I'm not saying anything, but when I'm listening. So as I say that to you, do you find that listening component in what you've experienced with your success just as important as any tip or advice that you give as a coach? Absolutely. Like I... With everyone that I've coached, I always choose my words very wisely. I try not to overcoach and like you say, coach at, at them. Like you, you're just trying to get them, sometimes listening can be, and then just guiding them in a good direction themselves can be more powerful than just rattling off a bunch of instructions. So yeah, everyone's different though. Like every, some players need to be 
barked at more. Some people need a, a kind of a softer, quieter hand. You really have to be adaptable as a coach and understand what gets the best reaction out of each person and each player. I try to be as, as adaptable and versatile as I can, depending on who I'm coaching. But my most comfortable space of coaching is to be positive, to be calm, to not place too much importance on the result. It's just the process and that, and that I think works for a lot of players, but there's times when you, you definitely need to rev up the intensity and challenge it with Mike and Bob. Like there are a couple of times I can remember really challenging the getting pretty fired up or like in a football coach situation, you would imagine when I felt they needed a spark. And so you, it's just, it's not just one formula. It's a, every tournament, every match is a different question sometimes that so you have to really be adaptable to the situation. Well said. I have a couple more for you here, coach, and it's along the lines of what you're most proud of. I had a situation recently where one of my former players came up to me and said, coach, you've had this many state championships for individuals and you've had all of this success of coach of the year and stuff like that. And I look at those results and I look at your results and those are all fine and dandy, but I had a moment about a year ago where my son, he is a, a cross country and track runner in high school. And I got to, as his dad, just sit in the stands, obviously cheering him on and, and listening and just observing the environment. And he goes out and wins a, a state championship for his high school. And one of the most proudest moments I've ever had in my life was not anything that I accomplished as a coach, but just being present in the moment of my son having his moment. And when I say that, I just would love for you to share with the listeners, what is the proudest moment in your life holistically based off of everything that you've been able to experience? Oh, I think that to have the close relationship with my daughters, obviously is, even though I was apart from them so much, it was a tough growing up for them, for dad traveling so much and they would come with me when it was possible, but we had just great quality time that now just to know that we're still so close, despite all the sacrifice of time that was necessary to do my job. So that's just the biggest blessing for me. And then to have such a great relationship with Mike and Bob and John, after all the trials and tribulations that we went through, all of us together to just be such good friends after the fact is, is really special to me because it's, it's a cauldron of competition, especially at that level. So to, to come through so many years, like 15, I think it was with Mike and Bob, maybe seven with John and to be so close to despite all the ups and downs that means a lot to me too. And lastly, you've obviously gained a tremendous amount of perspective through your journey and there's a lot that you've learned to this point. I just would love for you to go back to that 17, 18 year old Dave McPherson building up your ranks in the tennis world and getting that opportunity that you did with some tremendous coaches back in the day that really catapulted your development. And I just would be curious to know if you had an opportunity 
to go back to your 17 to 18 year old self, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give? <laughs> oh gosh, I wouldn't change anything. Everything's just meant to be. Obviously looking back, I would probably wouldn't have tried to learn a 200 backhand and I would have played doubles on the deuce like Bob ended up as a lefty. There's lots of yeah, things that I probably I would have tried to play left-handed like you, you know, That's right. <laughs> but it's no point really. You can't change anything, but I suppose no, I wouldn't change anything. Like I obviously could have done better as a player. I did well, but you know, looking back, you, I would have, should have developed a stronger baseline game. And maybe I was, because uh, growing up, we were all, our heroes were all Australian, one-handed backhand, all slices. And by the time the eighties rolled around, so that, that game was a bit antiquated. So if you, just from a practical standpoint, I probably should have tried to learn a better topspin backhand or a two-handed backhand to, to see the future because I was playing such an old-fashioned way that it just didn't stack up very well with where the game went. So I suppose just if you're asking from a practical standpoint, would a 17-year-old David McPherson to be a better tennis player? That's what I probably needed to do, but I was so used to my slice backhand, I used to just poke it in there and it was good for that particular moment in time. <laughs> Fantastic. Coach, I cannot thank you enough for the time that you've made for me today. I know that you're recharging your batteries there in California and that you have a busy year ahead in 24. And there's just so many nuggets that we got to learn from you today. But most importantly, I'm proud of you. I am very uh, humbled to hear your heart and your passion to, to help people something that deeply resonates with me and a tremendous story. One of the greatest coaches of all time in tennis. And I can't thank you enough for joining me on the BTB project. It was my pleasure, Colin. I enjoyed every minute of it. Excellent. Listen, if this episode inspired you, do me a favor, like, and subscribe to the BTB project. Better yet, send the episode over to a friend, family member, or colleague and let them know why it impacted you. It's these types of stories that allow us to understand what we're capable of, and more importantly, to keep paying the mission forward. I'm proud of each and every one of you, and until next time, take care.